Welcome to the Razor Show with the Athletics' Nick Underhill and Jeff Powell, plus three-time Super Bowl champion Matt Chatham. Welcome back to the Razor Show. This is Matt Chatham, and welcome to those of you who are hearing us for the first time. We are welcome to live inside your ears. Now, this is a Monday morning, the day after a huge Patriots victory against the Dolphins. All that apprehension about what might go down in South Beach looks a little silly now. Understandably, though, there was some nervousness, obviously, with the recent history and the conditions down there. And you know, maybe a little uh, offensive line intrigue and the Antonio Brown stuff and so many different storylines that we want to dive into today, as well as just give you that general day after game review. But first and foremost, before I dive into any of that, I'm going to send you our experts down there uh, in Miami. Uh, Jeff Howe and Nick Underhill did an awesome job of grinding and uh, driving away, as those guys always do. Uh, they got to watch that game yesterday. They got to go back and watch it again uh, and then write all their content and get together on the road in a hotel to send back their reactions. Uh, so they're out there hustling uh, big time, and I want you to first and foremost hear their reactions to the game and what they took away. We'll bounce off that and then go from there. So the Patriots absolutely walloped the Dolphins, and I thought a big takeaway had very little to do with the actual game as opposed to just the Patriots handling their own business. There was some adversity with the way the offensive line had to shuffle in the first quarter. 102-degree heat index, a place where they had lost five of their last six games, a season after they were, by their standards, atrocious on the road, had five virtual no-shows. And Belichick has really ingrained that in their heads since training camp. I mean, those two weeks away in Detroit and Nashville, all Belichick kept reminding them of was three and five, three and five, three and five, to the point where Brady had to start arguing, actually, five and five, if you want to include the playoffs and the Super Bowl. But... So the Patriots came out and handled their situation. I mean, again, there were, it's kind of funny to think back in, in hindsight, knowing the final score of the game, but uh, two straight scoreless drives, including the one missed field goal. So it really wasn't all that bad, but it seemed like, oh man, here they go again in Miami, but they didn't let that happen. And I just thought that, again, the Patriots' attitude or mental toughness or mental discipline through a handful of situations along those lines speaks to their long-term potential this season. Not that we didn't know they didn't have the talent, but you always got to make sure that you have the intangible stuff. And that was something the Patriots didn't have until much later on in the game last year. Yeah, the craziest thing about this game is they scored 43 points, and you can look back at it and pick out probably five or six moments where things could have been a lot better than they were. And they probably left some points on the board. And they just went out there and... I thought they, they executed fairly well, like you said, considering Isaiah Wynn goes down in the middle of the game. By that point, they're down three offensive linemen from what they projected maybe three weeks ago to have as their, their starting group. And that group more or less held strong pretty well. Uh, they ran the ball decently. Brady had time. There was some pressure at times. But overall, you know, given the circumstances, they did galvanize and come together pretty well. And I know you went through it and had the pressure stats. So... I mean, where were some of the trouble areas that you saw throughout the game, and, and where do you, you know, feel like they, they performed pretty well? Well, it starts with Marshall Newhouse and Corey Cunningham, and I, I didn't have a single note on Cunningham, which I was shocked by. I mean, it was his Patriots debut. He joined the team 17 days before uh, making his debut down in Miami, and they gave him help. I'm sure it wasn't perfect, but in my untrained eye, I didn't have any uh, any minuses or checks against him in pass protection. 
Now, collectively, I think the running game still needs some improvements, uh, especially up the middle of some of those runs. But you know, then you look at the left side, and Marshall Newhouse, who had four days uh, to prepare for what ultimately was his first start, and then in the first quarter having to switch from right tackle to left tackle, he gave up a sack, two quarterback hits, uh, and then he was called twice for holding. Both of those were ultimately declined. Uh, and Ted Karras had a hold. Uh, Shaq Mason had a sack, and that was it. Joe Tooney's second consecutive clean sheet. And having Tooney, you know, if they lose win for any length of time, and, and as of this recording, we still don't know what the diagnosis is for win. A foot injury is always a scary uh, thing to consider. But, again, we don't exactly know what's going on. But if they lose win, having a guy like Tooney at left guard, assuming they stick him there, I mean, they have use in a tackle. But if, if they keep him at left guard, it's going to help whoever has to plug in and play at left tackle. Well, I mean, to be fair to Newhouse, he only knows about 80% of the playbook at this point. <laughs> so that was a pretty amazing reaction by Marcus Cannon, former TCU teammate. And uh, from what I understand of Cannon's times at time at TCU, he was an epic ball buster. And he's carried that over to New England, too. So a guy who likes to have a good time. But uh, who had that video? Should we we got to give a shout out. It was uh, Zach Cox. Zach yeah. Cox and Nesson.com tweeted. Uh, Cannon's reaction to Newhouse saying that he knew 80% of the plays and pretty hilarious if you guys haven't seen that. Before we go back into Antonio Brown, which we got to get to at some point too, I mean, the defense is something that, like, it's amazing at this point right now how well they're playing. And, and it's almost possible to overlook it given what happened on the offensive line and, and, you know, Brown's debut with the team and how that went. But this group looks to be quite incredible at this point and really it's hard to envision a scenario at least until the schedule gets tougher where you actually see them tested because they're just going to, they suffocated this team going back to the Pittsburgh game and seeing how they played last night against Seattle, that game in that context looks a lot better than I think it did even right out of the gate. And it was amazing then. And you just look down the line at the next few weeks of the season and it seems like they're going to keep this up. And Stefan Gilmore, you know, it's almost a tired storyline at this point, but he might be like the best defensive player in the NFL, just given his position, his positional value, how well he's playing, and then just the consistency at cornerback, which is incredibly hard to achieve. Like you even look at like Jalen Ramsey, and he he experiences ups and downs, and Marshawn Lattimore in New Orleans, there's ups and downs. Gilmore is like, you know, Revis did it for a ton of years, but like just in a short window, he's almost like that Revis level type of player where every single week he's erasing somebody and. You know, I don't even really think he gave up a catch last night. There was one that was, you know, borderline. He was in zone, but it's it's it'd be it'd be a little nitpicky to put that one on him. But like, man, that guy is just amazing to watch week after week and what he's doing. I, I just I know we talk about it a lot, but it seems like we don't even talk about it enough because like it's very very right. Yeah, and I mean he's a guy who just refuses to draw attention to himself too, and he's sneaky funny, but. He's not like, I mean, I've written this before, he's not like the guys that you mentioned, or let's even say Akeem Tlaib, Marcus Peters, Richard Sherman, or Rebus uh, earlier in his career, where he doesn't show vote, he's just, he's a technician on the field. It was funny, I tagged him for four catches in week one against the Steelers uh, for 43 yards on five targets. Which is nothing. Which really, you know, by his standards was like, oh, he gave up four catches. Uh, but he did it against Juju Smith-Schuster. I mean, Ben Roethlisberger is still uh, an upper-tier quarterback. But four catches for 43 yards against a guy like Schuster, especially when you win the game 33-3, really not anything that was concerning. He was perfect against the Dolphins. 
of 5, the two quarterbacks were when throwing at him. He had a pass breakup that led to an interception. He had a pick six on when he jumped a route on a weird play that looked like a Madden glitch. And I'll, I'll bring it down to the pass rush now, too. Now, they only had 12 disruptions in week one against the Steelers, which, you know, by comparison to last year, they only had three total games, including the playoffs, when they had fewer than 12 disruptions. Now, I count those as sacks, quarterback hits, and pressures. And I wasn't concerned by the pass rush because Roethlisberger did such a good job of getting the ball out quickly, and we had seen such a larger sample size of how quickly they could get to the quarterback uh, in the preseason or training camp, and that showed up again against the Dolphins. Now, the, the asterisk there is the Dolphins might have the worst offensive line in the NFL, but you've got to make them look like that. That's no right. excuse to just be like, you know, the Patriots went hard. They had 23 disruptions against Miami, and the thing that stuck out to me was actually it hit me later in the game. I think it was the fourth quarter when uh, Michael Bennett got his first sack, and then he had a quarterback hit shortly thereafter. They did all of that, or they really started to wreak havoc before Bennett even kind of got on the disruption scoreboard, if you want to call it that. So uh, that's a pass rush with a ton of potential, and it comes from so many different areas. 23 pressures is like an absolutely absurd number. Yeah, on, I don't know, what was it? I think there were 39 passes plus six sacks, so 20, half the dropbacks. That's insane. Like, that's unfathomable for a team to be able to get after a quarterback that much. Uh, last thing from us, too, Antonio Brown's debut. I kind of had my eyes on him uh, throughout the game, and I'm pretty encouraged by what we saw. I think that the first three series were probably more scripted plays and stuff they hammered on and they were able to get comfortable with. And within that comfort, I think you saw what he can do in this offense once he gets a full knowledge base and he has that chemistry with Brady and the timing's on and they know where he's supposed to be. And, you know, it, it was very, very encouraging in that aspect. And his touchdown, too, looked like something where they kind of had a hand signal and there was a little bit of an adjustment. So just his knowledge and ability to pick up the offense that quick and be able to perform it at that high of a level early in the game, I think speaks volumes about where he's going to be able to get if he does not end up on that exempt list or, or you know, unable to play for, for whatever reason. But, you know, that's something that, that's going to play itself out. And we can't really speak to that yet, so we'll keep it on the football. But as the game went along, and it was a little bit outside of those scripted plays and the things that they probably, you know, drilled and practiced on. You started to see a little bit of the issues and, and the uncomfortable, you know, stuff going on. Brady overthrew him one time. There was another out where it looked like Brown flattened out where Brady expected them to continue up the field a little bit more. But I think as they practice more together and they get that chemistry and Brady learns how to read his body language and, and Brown learns exactly what Brady wants. Those things are going to all clean up and it's going to become more cohesive. And I think really quickly early on, you can see the element that he's going to bring to this offense. And he was already drawing some double coverages. There was one play where he held a safety and allowed Edelman to get open underneath and get a catch and run. And just, I, I don't know how teams are going to match up with them when, when they get this full slate of weapons going and, you know, Brown's firing even at 50%. This is probably like a, you know, 30% type game for, for him. And man, once it gets there, like they're going to be, they're going to be unbelievable if he does not end up suspended. Yeah. I mean, think about how limited his usage was. I don't think uh, there was one third down. I think it was actually Brady's underthrow when he, uh, Brown smoked Eric Rowe off the line. Yeah. But he wasn't even supposed to be on that third down play. There was a timeout or some sort of stoppage and the Patriots brought Brown onto the field. That might have been the only time he was even on the field for a third down. So that just sort of shows you that, again, 
it's it's hard to give them a full workload. It's impossible to give anybody a full workload like that. But the start is reminiscent somewhat of the way that Josh Gordon came out firing last season. Gordon, you know, another guy. Brady missed him his first three looks in that direction. At least two of those times, the guys just weren't on the same page. So you've mentioned leaving points on the board. I mean, with how many weapons they have, these guys are eventually going to sync up and, and be virtually unstoppable, at least on paper, assuming they all stay healthy and all that stuff. And you know what? When you mentioned the double coverages, teams are going to be crazy to not double got a guy like Antonio Brown. And then you have you know, Julian Edelman is still a number one wide receiver. Josh Gordon, when he's clicking, and I expect him to be, uh, still has a number one wide receiver potential. So you can say the Patriots have three number one guys right now, and at least one of them is going to draw, what, your third best coverage defender? And, you know, with Edelman work in the middle of the field, you can't double everyone. It's a video game offense. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And yeah, and don't forget, Dorsett's still really good, and James White's probably like a, a top-tier receiving back. So, I mean, it's going to be ridiculous when they get everybody going. But uh, that's going to wrap it up for us, and back to Matt Chatham. All right, some great stuff there from the guys per usual. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned on the Open, they've been out there writing, writing stuff and grinding away and getting their big, big, longer-form takeaways in written form. Uh, go and check out their stuff as always. Uh, you, you know we had a lot of fun with Nick's column from last week with the swamp ass. Clearly, ball handling didn't end up being an issue, so maybe the little technique works. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a reason the GOAT goes to that kind of thing. Uh, and the little idea that I brought up about the white gloves, they did it again, but I saw a few guys with some other colored gloves, so maybe it wasn't just that. Uh, but, again, Jeff is, you know, uh, always exhaustively goes through a, a number of points, a litany of points, many of which you just heard him say on that segment as far as rush statistics and targets and really the the breadth of the game that I can't go into that level of detail the way I rewatch it. So uh, check those guys' stuff out there per usual. And as you head through the rest of this week, I'm sure we'll be getting you guys, all three of us will be sending you stuff on the Jets, uh, keep you right on top and as informed as any reading customer in the Patriots universe. So uh, a couple things I wanted to touch on, though, that Jeff did hit, and Nick. Um, and I love that Jeff you know, sort of led with the idea of game context and a mental toughness and speaking to the uh, long-term potential of this team and all those kinds of things. Because that's actually a very uh, – it's an astute point because that is kind of where Bill generally uh, focuses his speeches with players. So – I know this from you know the, the the six years I was there, and even hearing guys from eras after me echo the same sentiment. It's talked about every year, regardless of the year, as Miami being just one of the really really difficult places to get a win. So even when the team down there in this instance kind of sucks, I mean they're playing really really terribly, and I hate that that comes off as maybe some sort of derogatory reflection on Brian Flores. I don't I don't mean that. I think it's sort of been a stripped-down situation around him, and he's just dealing the best he can. But they're not good, right? I think through two games you can tell that's a historically not good first two-weekers. Uh, but in saying that, Coach Belichick was always over the top about, I don't care what's going on, I don't care what other thing contextually is happening around the NFL. 
you always feel great when you go into that goofy little teal locker room and come away with a victory. You're hot. You're exhausted. Uh, maybe it is 43 nothing. whatever. Who cares? You know, you're going to get back on that plane. Uh, ice bags everywhere. I mean, that's the, the most ice bag filled player flight uh, that you're going to have during the season because you get dehydrated. You get exhausted. Even when you win, your body doesn't know any different. Uh, you're still beat up from that thing. And NFL games are physical, even the winning ones. So it's just a good feeling to come out of there because you know there are so many other distractions, you know, from environment and 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 things going on in the AFC East and all that 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 make it feel uh, very very uh, good, I guess, when you come away with that particular one in a blowout in a super close uh, thrilling thing like Troy Brown, you know, catching a ball at the end of the game in overtime to to win and seal it, or or an incredibly deflating situation like a year ago when they, they hit on the miracle or whatever. So um, it's just a place where there's always going to be enough people in the room that remember the good and bad times. So when you come away with a good one, it feels exceptional. Uh, and the mental toughness that Jeff touched on is such an important point. I think Nick also kind of uh, mentioned something along those lines that there are sort of pivot points in a game. And this is, again, something that, you know, the reporters and writers are catching catching on, uh, but that again, Coach Belichick is, te- is actually telling players this is this is identical to what he talks to them about. Um, when we're watching back a film, he'll talk about sort of these pivot moments, these times, these times in a game where it could go one of two ways. You know, he, he sort of expect you can you can take this in any good football game where they win, or you can take it in the crappy ones too when they lose, and say, hey, there's these half a dozen moments where, um, yeah, something went against you. You know, yeah, you know. I Isaiah Wynn goes out. Yeah, there's there was sort of a, a window of opportunity there for Miami on this X, Y, or Z situation. Uh, but it's those moments where you have to close the door and then not only close them, but jump through it and capitalize yourself. That's like a Bill Belichick speech. And and Nick and Jeff picking up on that is is a big thing because that's that's really what that's how you're sort of taught as a player. You're taught that, you know, you're not taught that, hey, we're better, every play will be better. It's not that way. Even in a game where you're dominant like this one, you're still looking at like a 70 to 30 percent clip they're going to win some plays it's just hey they get seven yards on first down can you still finish the drive out you know defensively stop them stop them again get off the field you know or or allow the conversion in the next sequence slam the door shut Uh, and there were several moments um, I don't recall if it was Jeff or Nick but they alluded to the notion of uh, of sort of um, you know, you you had your back against the wall with a couple drives that didn't bring fruit, and it sort of sort of felt like the stall. You know, and that'll happen in South Beach. There'll be the sort of this is you're in sort of this Neverland kind of feel where it's like, okay, things are going different. We're dominating time of possession in the first half, and it's like seven zero. What's going on? You know, that kind of thing. Keeping them within striking distance. I think the score before half of the Patriots was monstrous because if you'd have gone through all that and maybe ended up at ten zero heading into the half, you know, it just feels different. They they got the quick score. The Brown touchdown, I believe that's the one that, that made it 14-0. And then it's like, okay, okay, peel away a layer, a layer uh, put behind us an opportunity they had that we, that we closed, and uh, go on from there. But uh, I just think that uh, the the – the overall feel of knowing that there were actually a lot of, of pitfalls here and, and they didn't fall into them and uh, they, they didn't give into those kind of things. It does speak to mental toughness. I think that was Jeff's point. The idea that 
you like to see a group that's kind of got that medal. And it's helpful to have some salty guys like Bennett, who's been around in a lot of different organizations, won a championship in another place, uh, has seen a lot of different things that can kind of mix some of his experiences with, uh, and, and even Brown, you know, uh, Antonio Brown, a guy who's seen it all in a different place, although never, you know, pulled home those rings. Um, having that kind of mix in the room with a Josh Gordon who's been at a place that never wins, but that's now contributing heavily to a to a winner, uh, and and Philip Dorsett is another example. You know, it didn't go well for him in another place. Comes here and learns sort of the winning, winning culture, and he's a step up. Got to make it play all the time. You start mixing in those guys with the room full of Van Noys and Hightowers and McCordys and and Slaters and Bradys and Devlins and on and on and on and James White and all these guys that have known nothing in the NFL but doing it that way, but rising to the occasion when those moments come, 99 out of 100 times, whatever it is, or maybe 8 or 9, whatever, out of, out of 10. But the idea is that they're used to responding that way, and 31 other rosters, more often than not, at least not at the same rate as the Patriots do, don't answer the bell that way. So it's sort of learning, it's mixing cultures. It's a culture of winning that has to bring in you know, the new houses and Cunninghams and people from other places and get them up to speed quickly. And know that, you know, you're going to have bad plays in a game, but there are other times of the game where you can't have those bad plays. And that, that's sort of the whole notion of rising up. They did a great job with it. Uh, I, Jeff went through his pressure stats uh, as far as the offensive line, and I, I would be over the top uh, here in saying that this is – I understand the, the pull and the draw of the Antonio Brown story. It's a national story. It was a daily thing for like a, you know almost two weeks straight. And then he gets in-house, answers the bell really early. Um, and then you get into the other dominant performance of the defense, which, again, stretching back three games, we're talking like six points over three games, one of which, and this is why I think this is in historical context, without searching it, without going back and finding if there was some three-game stretch with the Bears. Actually, I looked on that. I don't think there's any that, that match it in the 85 Bears, but there was a Steelers stretch where they had a handful of shutouts. I think what makes this contextually better, this little three-game stretch for the Patriots, is that the first of which, uh, being the Super Bowl, it's the biggest stage. So you take that into account. You take the biggest stage and you take that against uh, uh, the, you know, if not one or two, I recall, no, I don't recall if they were one or two in scoring for the season, but that was, you know, that's that's doing the great, the great, great performance against the best possible uh, competition. So that really elevates whatever the box score ends up saying. Uh, they gave up three, but you go to these next two games, and it's the Steelers. It's on opening night. It's it's seven, you know, seven months, eight months, or whatever, a preparation. Uh, to get to that game, and you still have Roethlisberger, you still have Juju Smith, and I think it was Nick that touched on, hey, in context now, after seeing the Steelers and, and Seahawks battle it out and the Seahawks just eke by them, uh, you know, kind of makes what the Patriots did to the Steelers look that much better. So when you take in the context of, it's not just that you beat the Steelers, it's not even that you dominated them, it's it wasn't 50-20, to 20, it was 33-3. to 3. So in context, defensively, that's two in a row that's like, holy hell, that's, that's big time stuff. You didn't just beat them. You just suffocated them, stepped on the throat that had no air in it. So that's that's pretty impressive. Then you throw in this one where it's just there's there's so many pitfalls or so many reasons that this could you could trip and fall and maybe have a step back game and still comfortably beat them by say two scores. But it wasn't that at all. It was defensively, it was no life at a moment was their life. Some of the vertical, one of the vertical plays with J.C. Jackson where he's reaching up through the, it looks like a near completion and he's reaching up through the pocket, pulling down on the arm and preventing a monster catch that could. 
could have been, you know, one of those swing pivot moments. You get that catch, things feel different. You prevent that catch, things go the way they did. So um, just I think it's a three-game stretch that you have a lot to feel really, really good about. And again, I know I'm lumping two, two different teams in together with a, a game from last season and then now. But with the depth that we've been hitting you over the head with with all these Razor shows and then in concert with uh, some of the, the light scheduling that, that Nick or, or Jeff, one of those guys, touched on uh, relative to you got two division games coming up here in a row. The Jets are beat up. The Bills could be an interesting cont- contest there in Buffalo. Um, but, you know, you get through those and then we know what's behind them. You don't start ta- taking on the, the presumptive playoff teams in, until well into the season. So could be a very, very fast start. It takes a lot of mental focus to not trip up through that that stretch. Uh, one thing I did want to touch on, uh, and Nick talked about uh, sort of the, the game glitch thing. I think we're talking about the, the, the Gilmore tip and then interception. Uh, I, I loved that that something like that shows up in the game uh, that is specifically, specifically worked on in practice. They want that uh, to actually manifest itself in the game, so they go and create drills that are identically that. I mean, I got all hot and bothered when I saw that thing. I mean, I'm I'm watching this thing from studio back here with Nesson. I'm not. I, I did not travel to the game, so uh, those guys are up there in the box watching it, and I'm getting to see the TV and rewind it and check it out, and uh, I'm like. That is that is the tip drill. So we do this drill back till freaking 2000. Uh, they go out of their way in ball disruption periods to have that scenario where it's a it's it's a contested play, and you know you can't reach and grab it with two, but you sort of have the wherewithal to who's around you, and you reach and and keep it alive. You volley it, but you don't volley it in traffic. There are rules to this, or at least coaching points, I guess, to this. You kind of have to understand what's around you when you do it because you bat it up in the wrong place and then one of their guys swoops through and gets it. But the way Gilmore had him covered up, I mean, I'm just guessing, but I'm you have to kind of think that he understands the environment around him and that there is no other receiver. It's a safety backing him. And he reaches and touches, and it doesn't look like a like an, a PBU attempt. It doesn't look like he was trying to knock it to the side. It looks like he gave it air intentionally, and then the safety comes in and, and swoops it up. And it's like that drill, we do that drill. <laughs> We've done that drill forever with linebackers, with tips over the middle, with with defensive backs doing that. And uh, it, it's kind of cool when when it really works together. I remember an old one with uh, Rodney Harrison and Eugene Wilson doing it between one another. They were near the sideline, and Gino, I believe, tipped it to Rodney. Hope I don't have that backwards. But it, it's something that doesn't come up a lot. But that's what Belichick is renowned for doing, working on the stuff that doesn't come up a lot. Uh, and But then having it really pay off when, when it does come up because you've worked on it. Um, the pass rush potential that Jeff touched on, you know, I, I love that point. The 23 pressures and six sacks that he referenced. I mean, it's just so mind-blowing. I think you heard that from both those guys. It's like those numbers don't even make sense. They're so crazy good. And I I love that uh, that, that they mentioned that Bennett's sort of least statue productivity came up much later in the game, uh, whereas we were kind of presuming he'd be sort of the lead dog on all this stuff, uh, much like a Trey Flowers type. And uh, I do not agree with the, the internet sentiment that I read. Twitter, somebody was coming at me. I don't recall who it was, uh, just with some ball busting back and forth about where Bennett is relative to Trey Flowers. I don't see any rationale in, in, in sort of uh, bashing uh, Trey on the way out at the door because other success is happening here. Trey's tremendous. He's an awesome player. I think he'd be, he'd be would slot in and be just as productive with this group. But 
I think it's more of success that the Patriots found a comparable player in Bennett, albeit older and, and cheaper. So you love that uh, because he's productive, he's active, and he's flexible. He's, they're using him all over the place. And he doesn't have the ego, at, at least he hasn't made it public at this point, about about really caring when or how he slots in because I'll get into that in my little game breakdown here, but he wasn't on the field uh, to start things out with the rush group. And, uh, but he still comes in and absolutely impacts the game later. So, um, you know, they just, they rotate these guys through. And this is also on a day where Dietrich Wise was inactivated and Dietrich was one of the better, at least, you know, had the big strip sack, uh, against the Steelers, um, is the longer unique body type for that, but you know, got squeezed on a 45 day and, um, that'll happen from time to time. Good players are going to have to sit and, uh, it's good to see the rush have such a big day, even minus one of their, their better contributing rushers. So, uh, I thought Nick's point to, to sort of close things out on the uh, encouragement of Brown and that, that things are going to come better, become better with time. I mean, I think we all kind of expect that, but I like that he caught on to the idea that it looked like there was sort of a, a communication between Tom and, and Brown on the, uh, the touchdown because if you look at where that route hits, uh, Brown is aligned in the slot. I believe it was Gordon to the to the boundary with him, and Gordon's route's running right up the outside. And and it, it, you're in the danger there with with Brown's route fading back to the sideline beyond him. Though those two routes are either the second defender being able to fall off and become a part of that. But it doesn't look like a route, at least to my you know not knowing their play call kind of eye. Uh, that, you know, if this had been thrown a little bit different way, if it hadn't been sort of the wink-wink, throw-it-back shoulder, you could have gotten into a little trouble uh, with how that coverage shook out if you put it back towards where you would expect the ball to go. But it was sort of a moment where, okay, I've got him if we do this back shoulder, and the hit on that. And that's one of those routes dating way back to David Patton in the Super Bowl in 2001 where they just kind of have a little thing. It's not necessarily built into the play call, it's, uh, it's got to be a communication and understanding and a rep thing between the guys. Now, we had heard or report, someone had reported that, that Jared Stidham was staying late with Brown throughout the week, throughout the week, throughout the week, a week ago, even until as late as 10 o'clock, and repping the different kind of throws that the Patriots do. It still has to be executed through Tom and, uh, you know, his delivery or exactly this spin rate of his ball or where or how it you know enter how how it arrives or whatever is uh, going to be a little bit different than Jared but it's good that at least Antonio got lots and lots of reps as much as one reasonably could in a practice week at the route concepts that were going to work and we're going to be there for him but obviously we know that they missed on several not several but whatever it was four of the eight uh, and you expect those efficiency numbers to climb back to each other as things go down the road here. So what I wanted to do is for my own stuff uh, is after reviewing the game, I'll be honest with you, there's a there's a sense where it kind of gets out of control. So going drive by drive and then this happened and then that happened, you're not going to need to hear that in a 43 to nothing game. <laughs> but I, I think we should at least set the table with the very most important sort of contextual things that we let in talking about how they played out in the game and how that might sort of uh, lead to what we see later in the year. And one of the first things I wanted to start with was we do this every year. Uh, we talk about what we think is sort of their core. What's the core of the defense? And I'm talking defensive because the Patriots started the defense first. What's the sort of first thing they're going to lead with if it's sort of a, the fallback? If they get 12 personnel, that's too tight in, so it could potentially be more run heavy. If they get two back stuff, again, maybe more 50-50 or 60-40, but still there's a heavy run component to that. What's their 
go-to base configuration, even if base isn't a more than 50% thing. But what's there? We got to stop run. We need to take that part off the table to push us into more sub. What is it for these guys? And and for the Patriots, in a couple of games in a row now here, they've gone with a good old base 3-4. And I'm telling you, those are same calls, same coaching techniques that we were getting 19 years ago. So this is Bill's go-to thing. And I know there was a movement there for years where they were playing a lot more 4-3 over, over being the three linebackers off the ball with four downs. So it's almost like base defense that looks like nickel with just you know a personnel switch at one of those linebacker spots for a safety kind of thing. But they've really gravitated, I think in part because of the personnel they have, back to 3-4 being the, hey, if we need to stop one in the run-based kind of personnel grouping. And I love that because it fits who they are. It makes Danny Shelton a nose, a true nose, someone who will take on doubles, not get moved by them, occasionally split them. And if you single him uh, with the center, he's going to knock the center back into the front pocket of the quarterback. So that's tremendous. That fits him really well. That puts Lawrence Guy at the left defensive end. Lawrence is a 300-pound end. So he's not a he's technically an end. He's, a, he's like a closer to Rick Lyle back in the day. I don't know if folks will remember that Rick was that body type or that kind of player with us, but, you know, closer to a Seymour body type. You know, Seymour's, it's not fair to compare to Seymour because he was just a man-child and absolutely dominant and also had a lot of wiggle and move to him and stuff uh, as a rusher. So he wasn't just a straight bull. But as far as just straight run technique, Lawrence is very, and makeup, I mean more than anything, Lawrence is very similar. You know, he's a close to 300-pound guy, 6'5 dude, strong at the point of attack, just wins his run technique really, really consistently. So he's not a shoot-the-gap kind of guy. So if you don't have a shoot-the-gap kind of guy and he's 300 pounds, well, shoot, three, four fronts or where the the end is a five technique, which is like a tight, tight to the t- tight to the tackle kind of thing. That's perfect for them. That's like, hey, that's what that guy's going to do well. And you draw doubles from that spot, you know, almost sometimes as much as the nose will. It'll be the tackle and uh, the tackle and tight end doubling you a lot. It'll often be so you need a you need a bull. You need a big heavy guy, much like Seymour in the other example. Or they possibly move him down just a little bit head up to the tackle and maybe you earn a double from the guard. But you do need that kind of end if you're going to go with that configuration to be someone that can hold the point of attack. When the doubles happen, that's meaning the ball's coming too. They don't, they don't double on the backside. So it's good to know that Lawrence has really fit into a role and he's doing a lot with it. Shelton, the same. Now on the other side, this is a little bit interesting to me. So you got Brian Cowart up uh, on, the, on, the, on the game day roster. You've also, I'm trying to think of, you know, Dietrich Wise would have been that other end uh, or often is that other end in some in some scenarios. I think, I believe in the, in the Pittsburgh game, he, he slotted into a, to a five technique and a three, four, but I don't recall exactly. Maybe we'd have to wind that back to a year before, but putting that aside for a second, Brian Cowart's the other sort of heavier end kind of type. Um, but they opened with Adam Butler actually at that right end spot. So Adam Butler is, I don't know if he's 300 pounds, but he's maybe 290. But again, he's a heavier, he's an interior rush player on sub stuff. And he's very, very, very good at that. Uh, but then to earn some regular run defensive kind snaps, or at least run pass undetermined kind of snaps is a big deal for him. You know, that's, that's a step forward. That's an increase in role. I don't know if it fleshed out into an actual increase in rep count, but that's, that's a really good development for Adam Butler. Not only that he was out there, but that he held up and did really, really well in that job. So he's playing sort of the analogous role to Lawrence Guy on the other side, doing well with it, and then popping inside to rush stuff and kicking the shit out of that stuff as well, like he always does. So I think Adam Butler is an improving player. 
player, the role will continue to follow and and increase with that. So then now that we know you got a 3-4 core, the three part of the 3-4, the four, these four line, outside linebackers around them, you usually have two on the edge. Those are your outside linebackers. And for the Patriots, they went with Van Noy and Collins, opposite one and another, Jamie Collins. That's interesting to me because we know Jamie Collins left here as an inside linebacker. And we've seen Jamie through the preseason play outside in the 3-4. And in uh, and and a week ago, but if this this sort of looks like it's not game plan specific, you've seen it enough now to where it's like okay, that's their lead thing. And again, the interesting part of this is both Van Noy and Collins have been inside linebackers in New England. Van Noy had played a lot of inside a year ago when they were having so much issue getting guys in the field. So John Simon uh, getting depth on the inside and plowing through injuries. Bentley goes down. They you know they're rotating guys all the way through. Uh, but now Van Noy, who was a Sam linebacker, an outside linebacker in a 3-4 in Detroit, or Sam in a 4-3, don't mean to get you too far in the weeds there, but Van Noy has had really sort of a, I don't know, a chameleon kind of role. He can he can just do everything and blend in at whichever spot you need him to. Van Noy and Collins are both playing true outside linebackers at times now in a 3-4, which is really, really interesting to me. Both guys in a minute, they could change, and you could have those be your two inside linebackers. And that's what's so cool about the flexibility part of this. Um, the other sort of, uh, I don't know, it, I don't. it's not like a giant news item, but it, it's good to see Alanda Roberts back out there at middle linebacker and uh, Hightower alongside of him. Now, so, you know, the intrigue there, I guess, would be Juwan Bentley, who's been playing exceptionally well, had an awesome camp, played good last week. Uh, but that he's sort of, it looks like at least, maybe it was just a one-way thing. Maybe they come out next week and it's it's Hightower alongside Bentley. And they just continue to roll this thing through. But Landon the captain, Landon also the Mike in certain situations. He can play Will as well. Uh, that's just the other, the weak side inside linebacker. But they they seem to have that as their early, anyway, uh, configuration for the inside linebacker spots. But you're awful good at the other guy that can come in for him. So that's obviously a huge plus. So now going through, uh, what I'm going to do here is just touch on the big first stuff from the Patriots defense, and then we'll go through the big, big first things with the Patriots offense and how that answered some of the questions we had going in. Uh, Lawrence Guy splits a double team. Love that. In that base 3-4, one of the very first things he gets, he gets DT'd. He's got two guys on him. He splits it and then holds him to a tackle for one yard. That's a really good reflection of exactly what we're talking about. Now, the rush group – now, the next play is Jamie Collins shooting the gap on a, on a ceiling edge block from an off-the-ball tight end uh, for what would have been a jet motion sweep right outside of him. So, Jamie – uh, rather than me spend a lot of time trying to, to, to describe this, uh, which is difficult, obviously, to do over a podcast, check out the tweet that I sent out with that video breakdown, and it kind of shows just how different Jamie is. He shot a gap that most people get sealed on. If they, they attempt to do that, go under it, under the block as opposed to outside of it and hold the edge, a lot of guys don't quite make it, get rubbed past, and then the play hits. Jamie's different. That's a really good example of that tremendous play by him. Difference maker in that regard. Uh, and then the next one is the rush group on third down. So you're getting bang, 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 bang. You get, you get Lawrence's nice play on first down. You get Jamie's a really nice play on second down. And then now we get to see what their first rush configuration is. It was Butler as the big, which was different. It was like, okay, the Butler is the big, as opposed to Bennett being the the, the mid-big uh, on their third down sort of pass rushy kind of crew. And then you get Van Noy. Chase Winovich with a really early substitution, which was was a bit of a surprise. Collins, Hightower, and then Chung down in the box as a cover guy. We're used to seeing that Chung part, but he becomes the sixth. 
But this was a little change. So say you're you're the Dolphins and you've been studying all week how this thing works out, and you're you're floating looking for Bennett because he's the guy that has caused a lot of problems the week before and could end up in different spots. Sometimes over the nose. Sometimes he stands in his rush from the interior. So he's different. So you spent the week practicing that. You spent the week being told you got to locate him because some of the games are going to come off him or the protections may turn to him. Whatever it is, and he's not on the field. Instead, it's Adam Butler, and Adam has a really productive rush himself, although he's not. Is, he's a little heavier, uh, but he still is a pretty light-footed athletic guy in the interior. So Adam comes in as the changeup, and Van Noy, who's been an off-the-ball linebacker type, uh, you know, sub-linebacker type, is now an edge guy. He's rushing, and uh, Hightower enters into the rush as the off-the-ball guy, and Chase Winovich gets early reps with Collins. Is now <laughs> So the point is, your head's got to be spinning if you're the other side. You don't know if Collins is going to be an off-the-ball guy in coverage because he's so damn good at that. You don't know if Chase Winovich, you, don't, you may not have been expecting expecting Winovich with such early game reps. And Winovich has just been an energizer bunny late in the game a week ago, uh, really good throughout this game. He just has pest reps, you know, not necessarily sacks, but disruptive plays consistently. Occasionally gets knocked around. That's part of it. That's the gig uh, because you're going to have giant human beings leaning against you that weigh 50 pounds or more, more than you do. But he comes in and, and gets stuff done. It's it, Again, this is a tip of the cap from the defensive coaching staff to slide him in there earlier and really get rolling. Uh, so that was your group. Now, go on throughout the game. Obviously, Shalik Calhoun comes in a bunch. Bennett gets involved more. Jeff's hit stats. Check for those in his uh, in his columns. I think it's it's interesting that as you go through this game, uh, even when I mentioned Winovich, Winovich, where he lined up in that first series, isn't where he spent the rest of his reps. But they're really, I think, with all of these guys, willing to slide them all around. Van Noy can play right or left. He can play off the ball and inside and, and sub stuff. Hightower can line up as a damn defensive end, does, uh, but they can also be your Mac, your middle linebacker and sub stuff. So again, and, and you're knocking on wood. I'll do it here. I don't know if the mic picks that up, but you know, you don't want injuries. I'm not wishing those upon this group, but the beauty of that group is that they're, they're built to, to, to suffer them and they're built to survive them. Uh, they're, they're, they're two or three bodies ahead from there ever being any depth issues there. They've just got a lot that they can roll through. So that's a real good asset to have. That's in part why they're being so dominant on defense. Everyone can get it done and they can all get it done in different spots. So defensively, you know, again, this, it got downright dominant at times with the secondary group. There's, there's times where you can see Justin Jones is a, um, yeah, Jonathan Jones, excuse me, is a great example of just cruising along in his coverage. Really competitive, really in the pocket. J.C. Jackson's a is a is a come-in guy uh, who does a great job of playing up through the pocket. I mentioned that earlier. Getting the pass breakup. I'd say short of Gilmore, because Gilmore is just, he is the elite guy. He's just different than everyone else. But you've got really good ball skill guys from, from J.C. Jackson to, to Jason McCourty uh, to Chung at the safety position. And obviously we mentioned Jones. And again, this is two weeks now with Juwan Williams not playing. And I'm telling you, that guy's going to have a role at some point. He's long. He's different. If you've got a receiver you really need that matchup for, and you're not just so tight against it with, with numbers, he just seems like he's going to be involved at some point. But for even the guys that were dressed on this particular day, you got great ball skill guys. And why that matters in a particular week where you're play- playing, well, in this particular one, uh, you got Fitzpatrick and Rosen, who are both kind of throw it to you guys. You know they can both sling it. They can they can throw smoke on the end of the ball and, and deliver some hard balls. 
But also when pressed, these are guys that are going to put it in your hands if you'll catch it. And I thought there were several instances. Obviously, the one interception is not Rosen's fault. You know, throw it to the back. The back juggles it a couple times, bounces in the air, and Collins does a great job of taking off. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just tight balls, the 50-50 balls. We got a, you got a group here with the Patriots who are really good competitive 50-50 guys, whether that be uh, a PBU or actually taking it off someone. So, uh, And they play well together. I think that's probably, if we're, we're going to exit out of the points about the secondary, you see their, you see them communicating well with one another. You see them passing stuff off. I mean, Miami did go into a segment of the game where they attempted a little more motions and shifts and things like that or building of stacks or building of trips and building of the kind of stuff that are meant to confuse you. One of the really good assets that the Patriots have right now is this block of time that this group has had together on the back end. You don't see the mistakes that crept up about a year ago in the early times, so in those early months. So the communication is high. The play together is high. You see the coordination with the tip. You see the ability with really any of those guys to go up and get against a bigger man just to play the technique they're coached. You have to feel great about this. Just You hope they all stay healthy because it's an extremely strong group. Now, in the first offensive series, I wanted to go through this because I think it's really, I wanted to provide a little greater detail than really you could find anywhere on the interwebs or Twitter or whatever it may be. Hopefully that here at The Athletic, you're going to get the best possible from the ground, real inside look at what was that Brown series, the very first series of the game for the Patriots and how he was used, why it is that the ball came to him. And I think before I get into whatever my little opinion was, was on it, I want to reference Brady's comments. Brady was asked in postgame uh, about you know whether or not they were feeding Brown, or I don't exactly remember how the question was, was phrased, but just to the notion of whether or not they were attempting early to get him involved or if there was some other cause or reasons why he got the ball. I think the outside perception that, yeah, you see him thrown two, three times and he catches all three in the first drive, that feels like trying to get it to him. But Brady's answer was no. I mean, it's not as if these were game plan to go to him. He was in the game plan. In other words, he's in the packages, but we have to see certain things or certain things have to happen to send the ball that way. And if you look back at the three round catches, uh, there were reasons it went to him other than he's AB. Uh, so one note I did want to make is the very first play, which I think can kind of serve to confuse you a little bit if you're if you're Brian Flores, and you're saying, okay, we spent all this time wondering if Brown will be involved. We spent all this time wondering if he'd be an act, active. He's active. But does that mean he's heavily in the game plan? Is he only the third or fourth wide receiver in multi-receiver packages? Well, the very first down, you get 21 personnel. So two backs, one tight end, only two receivers on the field. And they come out in a pro set slot, right? So it's Edelman in the slot and Gordon at the X. So Gordon's the on-the-ball guy. Julian's in the slot. You have a tight end backside of it. I believe it was Izzo. Could have been lacrosse. I, I might not have that right. But then you have uh, I-backs in the backfield, Devlin and Michelle. So you, if you've been doing, you know, Brown-centric coverage or how we'll handle him and Julian opposite together or, or or on the same side, it's sort of a wasted thought. It's like, oh, okay, this is just basic shit. We see, we saw them do this a lot last year pre-Brown. Let's see how we handle that. And uh, it ends up being a relative of my mile play, I think like three yards. It's a gain. But what happens next is the part that makes you go, oh, my goodness. It's second and seven. And I jokingly put a little picture out on Twitter that I made. And I called this the holy shit group because it's second and seven. And they substitute in with 10 personnel. One back, that's James White, in the back, in the backfield, in gun, alongside Brady. And in holy shit group, uh, your back is one of the best receiving backs in the NFL. I, I, I'm st I'll stick by that until someone 
You know, I know Alvin Kamara's out there. I know there are a couple other backs that, that are great out of the backfield as well. But if James gets those kind of targets, James makes those kind of catches. And, uh, you know, he's as dangerous – let's put it this way. He's as dangerous uh, in a one-on-one cover situation as is any back out there for a linebacker. And that's – I obviously see that from that perspective. If you got to cover him, there are a few that are harder to cover than him. How the numbers shake out, I can't control that. Um, but beyond that, you've got four extended. So this is the old. This we actually used to refer to this as a spread. So spread being you know four wide receivers, but you still have the back in the backfield. Brady's in gun. He's two extended to one side, two extended to the other side. And why I call this the holy shit group is because you choose where you're going to send your focus, because Julian is in one slot to the defense's left, to Brady's right. Brown is in the defense's right slot, uh, Brady's left. So both of your slot guys are aligned slot guys are a huge problem for any defense in the NFL. Either of them could be the focus of the defense. And extended at X is Josh Gordon. And extended at the other at the other X, or what do you want to call him, the other on the ball extended, is uh, Philip Dorsett, who's been nails all, you know, for, for stretching back into a year ago. Awesome in the complimentary role. So you've got five eligibles on the field, every which of one, every which could be. And again, I'm mentioning Dorsett. He's a two touchdown guy from a week ago, and maybe the least dangerous. If if you if you buy that kind of uh, rationale, the least dangerous guy on the field had two vertical touchdowns a week ago. Holy shit, group! That's what holy shit personnel on the field again. But it was interesting to me that in that you choose what you're going to do. Are you going to overreact to Brown in the slot? and then get caught with your pants down because you just got too heavily involved in the storylines, you have to play straight defense. You do with that. You can't shift focus to maybe Gordon or something and then leave yourself thinner underneath. You can't two, You can't top it with two safeties uh, necessarily because you've thinned the bottom uh, coverage by one, and any of those four can be running slants or crossers or low stuff, option routes, whatever. It's just it's just a, it's a nightmare. It's, it's potentially a nightmare right there. And... Uh, I, this ends up being Brown's big first catch as a Patriot. What is it? What is it? I would. I don't know if it was a post. I don't know exactly what. I'd have to rewatch the, the exact trace on the route. But he ends up running behind uh, the little the linebacker to his side and running some sort of middle read type of route back to the middle of the field for I if I recall correctly something like a 17 yard catch or something like that. And it was bizarre because they actually had a zone pressure. So they actually blitz. The inside linebackers are coming forward. I shouldn't say blitz, but they're pressuring, right? They, they, they Guys who are off the ball cross the ball into the backfield. So inside linebackers are charging towards the line, which is going to create a vacancy over the middle, as opposed to them dropping and getting depth. They would have been under this route. So they chose to pressure it to get it out, which puts a lot of stress on either your outside linebacker or your down safety or end. I mean, it could even drop to get under those routes that either Julian or Brown are going to run in the slot. So all, all he does is, is just slide uh, back to the middle of the field, and he wasn't covered. So Brown gets his first catch, pick, he picks up over the middle, big catch, and one would think he was going to get more attention, but he absolutely did not. It looked like the Dolphins' idea more was, well, we don't know where it's going, pressure him, get the ball out of hand quicker, and maybe gamble that you know one of these ends falls off. I don't know. It, it, just, it was an ugly play for the first option that he would be on the field. And uh, I don't know, it certainly didn't look like Tom was directly looking to him. It's just you see the pressure in front of you, uh, the, the the zone flat, curl flat player or whatever to that side gets a zero depth. Brown's behind him. He's six, seven yards behind him by the time the ball arrives. So it's just an unchallenged, and it's terrifying. Let's put it that way. Uh, it makes you think that teams are going to see this Dolphins tape and plays like that and say, we're going to play man-to-man across the board against these guys. Oh, God. You know, like, oh, no. Oh, no. Um 
So good luck. Good luck with whatever you try. It's the holy shit personnel group. Now, Brown's second catch is isolation with trips. So I know I'm getting deep in the weeds here, but I just want you to kind of get a sense of, uh, of, of how detailed this stuff can be and why it worked out the way it did other than his name's Antonio or he had a lot of catches at some other place. Antonio was isolated in trips. So when I say isolated, you're the only one to that side. So uh, you're alone. And then trips, three people, the number three tray, try, try as the, as the prefix there, is, is, is uh, to the other side. So three humans to the other side and the back in the backfield. All the action goes to that side, and the Dolphins are in some sort of zone concept. Again, and what usually happens when you got a whole lot of bodies on one side and less on the other is the zone drops kind of favor the other side. So all the dropping action kind of goes towards where the other humans are. Now you're in an ISO situation, which I should put this a giant caveat over it uh, next to this thing. Um, because I'm watching this film early in the week, we don't have the coach's copy yet, so I kind of have to guess uh, and on coverage. Sometimes it gets cut off. You can't see the safeties. It's really hard to guess coverage. But what I can say is that the cornerback, cornerback on the ISO side to, to, to Brown side is playing off. You know, he's, he's sagging. He's not up pressing. He doesn't have inside press. He's certainly not off an inside man-to-man technique. He's dropping, which makes it look more like a cover three kind of thing. And what that is for the corner is they're the thirds player. So you're going to play on top of any route. What a thirds player really, really, really badly needs when he's isolated against a player like Brown is he needs to be able to give himself enough pad to stay on top of the thing. But the outside linebacker or end or whatever that's to the side extended of the ISO they need to drop out under that. You're gonna, there's a flat player in cover three that's supposed to get out underneath that route and bail out the corner a little bit so that he doesn't have to feel like he can be you know, tight down to that route. So all Brown does is run an out route. Now, I should also mention it's trips, but it's in the isolated guy isn't extended out to the numbers on the ISO side. He's actually in pretty tight to the formation. What does that immediately tell you as a defense? Well, he's about to run an outside route. You get tight to give yourself space outside. So you got space outside, that would mean further for the outside linebacker to get out underneath the route to dissuade the throw from Brady, but you get no depth or width or anything from the, the end or outside linebacker there. So it's just a thirds player on top of a really easy outcut. So again, the coverage dictated where to take that thing, and the way they played it was not nearly good enough. It wasn't even challenged. It wasn't, hey, that's Antonio Brown. It's just, I think, more the quandary of trying to guess where to send your attention. They sent the zone's attention to the other side. That particular call, you got to be tremendous at the outside linebacker position to get a ton of depth and width, maybe even pre-snap a line out underneath Brown to just make Brady stare at you and, and think you'll be there and go away. But they didn't, so it was a really, really easy pitch and catch. Don't even have to get into the talk about where's the relationship at and blah, blah, blah. That's just a really easy, simple concept to that particular particular coverage. You're going to see that no matter where you are in the NFL as a wide receiver. And then finally, well, let's keep going here. Um, there was, there was reverse action from trips. Uh, and I thought that was, that was interesting because now Brown is sort of in the package play stuff. So you've seen him get a couple catches. It's like, okay, how's he now involved? And prior to this, there was actually a Julian Edelman run. I think it just went for a yard. They tried a little reverse thing with him. Uh, it got strung out a little bit, so it didn't go for a bunch. Now they put, uh, they put, Antonio Brown in the bunch, in the three-man part again, as opposed to the extended part. Uh, and so they show a little jet motion with him, the, the idea of a receiver running behind the line of scrimmage towards a quarterback as if he might get a handoff. That little motion freezes the defensive end to the bottom side of your screen, to the to the open side, and uh, and allows sort of this little lane to be created for Sony Michelle. So Sony Michelle gets a big 10-yard run. And in part, 
it's that freezing. It's that freezing of the threat of, well, they've now thrown this guy the ball a couple times, and they use the other catch-and-run guy like Edelman with a, with a, a carry. And now Brown's involved differently in motioning. It, it makes you pause. It makes you go, what the hell are they doing now, you know? And in that moment, that little motion helps freeze the back end. You know, the the off-the-ball linebackers and the safeties are kind of moving a little bit with that. You can see them reacting to that motion. And then uh, Sony gets a really nice, wide, and, and open lane. And I would say as a criticism, uh, a soft one, but that Sony Michelle got gets the 10-yard run. It was pretty much what it was blocked for. Sony has been good in the past about making, not if not, not if not making the first guy miss, at least in being tackled by him, getting the fall forward for four or five. That was really one of those plays where it was blocked and open for more than that, I thought. Um, if Sony does make the first guy miss, or if Sony, you know, at least defeats him, and it goes for a lot more yards. Let's put it that way. So that you'd almost look at as, wow, we blocked that perfectly, set that up perfectly. The Brown distraction, I think, did finally pay off there. That was the first time where there was a Brown distraction, and it created another another sort of avenue for them. A really nice run play. So, um, final thing here is the the Brown third catch, and again, it's ISO trips. So uh, you're iso- he's isolated on the backside. He's the X, and there's three humans on the other side, and uh, it looks again, best I can tell, with the cutoff screen like a cover three because I'm seeing that corner drop off of him, and now I'm seeing a flat player that's coming from depth. So this is a little different. So before I was talking about a flat player, that's the area way outside and low around the numbers where you're trying to get out underneath these receivers that run a little curls and out routes and stuff. But on this flat play here with uh, with Brown, uh, I'm sorry, he's, Brown is just running a little curl. He's getting the three three type uh, coverage again. Let's call it three deep. Let's put it that way. I don't know if it's three. It could be something called invert, which I think this might have been. Invert is where the safety drops down to try to be that flat player to the side. So that's a little bit of a change. It's like, okay, before we couldn't get the guys from the front, the outside linebacker or whatever, to drop well under Brown's route. Now we'll bring the safety down from depth uh, to the open side, the weak side safety, invert, and try to have him buzz down underneath it. Well, the route cut off really short. So that works good if you're running a deeper out or a deeper in or a big, big, deep curl, like maybe 12 yards or something like that. But they just run a little quick out route. So the flat player can't get there. So the flat player that's coming from safety depth to get down to there, they don't get there in time. And the corner's playing off it, like we said, in thirds. So you just don't have a chance on that. So it's to me, there was three really perfect reads, independent of the fact that it was Antonio Brown is awfully skilled and picked this stuff up relatively quickly. Uh, and that's why those things went so swimmingly. And then we mentioned Nick, and he he talked about uh, Nick Underhill had talked about uh, the way they connected on that back shoulder. Fred, that that makes your four catches for the day. That's it. That was his day of work. And then the four times they weren't on with one another in the second, more in the second half, was yeah, some of these uh, downfield targeted routes where you're just off by yard, and it, it's Brady placement with with him. And those are the kind of routes that you expect will get better. Um, but these first route concepts really weren't that it wasn't the extended play stuff wasn't down the field doesn't got to be at this particular area when once you've read the coverage and go there it was more just the pitch and catch stuff early and I think that's why they hit on those so it's it's what how progressions work expect that other stuff to change as we go down so that was very deep 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 stuff and I I, I don't want to beat you I certainly couldn't do that I wouldn't want to do that for the entirety of the game especially in a 43 nothing type deal but I would say, by and large, you're going to obviously love what you're going to get from this offense. This is literally the the, the, the very, very first sliver of what could be a, an incredibly diverse. Uh, there's so many options for Josh. You know, he's going to have the ability to really build something special with this. It's held together by string right now with the offensive line, and uh, we're you know hopefully with Newhouse now in 
in-house. <laughs> You're going to get another week of work with him to get caught up to speed and be a little sharper on a handful of the stuff he did. And Cunningham came in and sounded like he did pretty solid. You know, I'll just put it this way. I wasn't doing watching offensive line play as much as I was watching, you know, coverages from the other side and, and sort of the progressions that Tom was going through with the receiver group. But um, I thought by and large, because I don't notice them, I usually mean I, I take that without reviewing the film 17 times to mean that it was at least uh, – serviceable. I like that word. No major issues. So no, they did not run for 200 yards in the ground. Uh, I still think it was a very positive uh, step forward because there were positive plays in the running game, but that's still got a ways to go. And I think it'll go its best when, again, knocking on wood here as we're recording, hopefully Isaiah wins uh, toe injuries minor and you're just missing a small amount of time. And then same with Marcus Cannon, slowly working his way back from his thing as well. When you get that full five in there, these guys are going to be special. In the interim, they're winning games and still looking awful good. So that's a good thing. Uh, and tip of the cap always, as we always do, to Dante Skarnakia. So that is your Razor Show. I hope you enjoyed it and enjoy the chimes in the background. <laughs> my front porch. Um, but thanks as always for tu- for tuning in folks. And I know if you're if you're watching this show, there's a good chance you're listening to the show. There's a good chance you're hearing this uh, on Apple or on Spotify or one of those places where you're getting it in a non-athletic environment because this is the free show for the week shows everywhere across all platforms. If you're watching it or geez, I did it again. If you're listening to it in those places, please 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 I would ask you to Fill out uh, the the rating. Go ahead and give us that five stars if you would. If you don't think it's a five star, hey, direct message. Well, I may have direct message. Maybe tweet <laughs> tweet at me and tell us what we could do better or different. Um, because we're doing the show for you guys and we're hustling here and going on little little amount of sleep to pump it out to you. So that's the, the Razor Show for this particular week. Um, but our team here at the Athletic and our friends at Wandery just launched a brand new daily sports show called The Lead. The Lead is the first daily sports news podcast that will cover everything from the world stage to the hometown. With the help of the Athletic's more than 400 sports writers and editors, wow, co-host Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto will bring you sports news up close and personal each weekday morning. You're about to hear a preview of The Lead. Subscribe to The Lead on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. There's also a link in the episode notes that will take you there. Check out theathletic.com backslash the lead. You can follow sports through sound bites or the full story. From up in the press box or down on the sidelines. What do you want to accomplish this year? Actually, I want to accomplish getting on this team first. This fall, a new daily podcast brings you closer to the sports stories that matter. Stories about players. A guy like Zion just represents that hope of the failures of the past don't matter because we've got this guy now. That's the buzzer. Oh, he knocks it down. Stories about hometowns. You will see hundreds of people wearing number 32 Simpson jerseys uh, in the stands on Sunday afternoons for a Bills home game. And stories about the teams you love. This was the first chance for all those baseball fans to see their guys. From The Athletic, home to the best storytelling in sports. And Wondery, the company behind Sports Wars and Gladiator. I'm Kavitha Davidson. And I'm Anders Kelto. Introducing The Lead. Go, go beyond the box score, five days a week. This isn't a story where you go to some place and interview the athlete and go home. It stays with you. Are you kidding me? The lead premieres September 16th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Oh, what a that. The lead, sports up close. Hey.
some more of that. 